Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, September 25th, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? Great, thanks. Very good. I thought today we could talk about a couple of questions submitted by multiple students and then discuss an interesting article that you published a few days ago in the journal National Affairs. First, let me remind students and instructors listening that if you'd like us to address a particular question or issue, you can contact us via email at hubbardobrieneconomics at gmail.com. That's H-U-B-B-A-R-D-O-B-R-I-E-N, economics, at gmail.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. Glenn, we had a request to discuss the unemployment situation. We saw a sharp spike in the unemployment rate this spring, reaching a peak of 14.7% in April. The unemployment rate declined to 8.4% in August, but that's still far above the 3.5% unemployment rates we saw at the end of last year and at the beginning of this year. How long do you think it will be until we return to unemployment rates of 4% or lower? Well, it's a great question, Tony, and it's super important whether it's for a young person looking for his or her first job, uh, somebody without a job, or is somebody just concerned about the health of the economy, which is to say all of us, the unemployment rate has remained, as you say, high, as have unemployment insurance claims, not as high as they were at the onset of the crisis, but still quite high. To figure out how long this lasts, you'd need to break it down into a couple of steps. First, how quickly will GDP uh, itself recover? And I think many economists are not thinking of the level of GDP hitting its previous level, i.e. pre-COVID-19 level, until well into next year or perhaps a little later. And given growth in the labor force, it would take some time for that uh, growth in, in output to generate jobs. A second is just the structural dislocations in the labor market. A lot of businesses have failed. A lot of occupations, for example, in some service sectors like travel and entertainment, restaurants, and so on, are going to be slow to come back. And individuals may be trying to look for another job in another industry, and that process will take longer. So we're going to be talking, I think, about unemployment as a problem for at least a couple of years. And there are many uh, forecasts from Wall Street firms and others that would have longer than that. So this is going to remain a real challenge, both for people looking for a job and for all of us worried about the economy. You may have seen the Congressional Budget Office as uh, projections uh, was released earlier this year. Of course, the Congressional Budget Office or the CBO is a federal agency, gathers data, makes economic forecasts to assist Congress as Congress considers the federal budget. And their forecasts tend to be widely discussed and they were pretty gloomy, ones that came out in early September. They, for instance, don't forecast unemployment rates below 5% until the beginning of 2027, right? So that would be six and a half years from now. 
they project that the unemployment rate won't drop below 6% until the second half of 2024. So that's, that's um, still about four years from now. And you mentioned GDP. They think that it won't reach its potential level, surpassing its previous level, won't reach its potential level uh, until 2028. But they had an interesting note on the, um, on the forecasts, and this raises some of the points you just made, that they said the projections, the ones I just discussed, are subject to an unusually high degree of uncertainty, which stems from many sources, including incomplete knowledge about how the pandemic will unfold, how effective monetary and fiscal policy will be, and how global financial markets will respond to the substantial increases in public deficits and debt. And I thought that was a pretty good summary of some of the things that we just don't know at this point. You know, you had raised the question of are there certain industries like restaurants, movie theaters, cruise lines, airlines that are going to go into permanent decline? Are we going to see two or three years from now that people still are not too comfortable in getting on airlines and maybe have decided that um, they'd rather stream movies at home and so on, rather than go to movie theaters? So to the extent that there are those significant changes, it most likely changes in the mix of products people would like to consume. That would tend, I think, to make unemployment uh, harder to reduce because it means people have got to leave where they were, leave the industries they were in, no longer uh, operate a restaurant or work in a restaurant or work in a movie theater, but have to do something else. I agree. And I, I think it's an opportunity for policy to ask what can we do given this uncertainty? Because as you say, we're not going to know, but we do know a few things. One, it would be great to have fiscal and monetary support to make sure that we have the recovery in GDP occur as fast as possible. And two, in the labor market, do what we can to support retraining and reskilling, i.e. more than just providing unemployment insurance that we might talk about with students in class, but also training programs and support for institutions that do that. That's good anytime, but right now is particularly useful. So I think where policy could be effective is focusing on the things we know. Yes, the virus will unfold. Uh, we'll learn more about structural changes, but there are some things we can do now. Those are excellent points because as we've discussed in previous podcasts, there has been a decline to a certain extent in, in business dynamism and maybe dynamism in the labor markets in the sense that We've seen fewer new firms being formed, and that often is a source for jobs, particularly jobs for recent college graduates. And we've also seen a greater reluctance of people to move. If you look at the census data, the number of people who are willing to move from state to state, or sometimes even county to county within a state, has declined uh, in the last couple of decades, which means that it's a little bit harder to adjust things given the current policies that we have. And we're going to talk, I think, later about your article in National Affairs, where you, you talk in more detail about some of the proposals that you've just made. Now, the last thing that the, the CBO mentioned was how global financial markets will respond to the substantial increases in public deficits and debt. We've had several questions uh, from students 
about the rising federal government debt. So as you know, back in March, when Congress passed the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, which is known as the CARES Act, it involved $2.2 trillion worth of spending, which was by far the largest fiscal policy action ever undertaken by the federal government. It's between two and three times as large as the stimulus bill passed in 2009 in response to the 2007-2009 recession. So that those large increases in spending have increased the gap between federal government revenues and spending. In other words, the federal budget deficit is increasing. So to fund the deficit, of course, the Treasury has to issue bonds. And the total value of the bonds outstanding is the federal government debt, which in the newspapers is usually called the national debt. If you look at the CBO's forecast, they think that the national debt will be about 98% of GDP this year, the value of, the, of the, all those outstanding treasury bonds that have been issued over the years would be about 98% of GDP this year. In other words, roughly the same value as GDP, which is historically very high. In fact, it's the highest since World War II. From there, they project that the debt is going to grow to 195% of GDP in 2050. So grow from about equal to GDP today to about twice as large as GDP in 2050, which is far beyond anything the U.S. has experienced even in wartime. So should we be worried by these forecasts? Well, I, I, I think we should because there's a layer beyond even what you said. You know, the CBO's outlook for 195% debt to GDP ratio was conditioned on an interest rate assumption and just a volatility, let's say, plus or minus one percentage point in interest rates can create very large dislocations. Uh, so, for example, if uh, the 10-year Treasury yield were now an ongoing one percentage point higher, those numbers would become alarmingly high. If you wanted to ask, well, what would it take to right the ship? So if we just wanted to return to our 2019 debt levels over time relative to GDP, we would have to contract either by raising taxes or cutting spending about 3.6% of GDP uh, if we started in 2025. But if we wait till 2030, it would be 4.4% of GDP. These are very large fiscal changes. Um, to not sound like an economist, it's really just the, it's, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's just that simple. We will have to pay for what we've done either by raising taxes uh, or by cutting spending or by inflating away the debt. And policymakers will have to make that choice. That said, I don't see the country on a precipice at the moment of a fiscal crisis. And in fact, the CARES Act and things like that were big one-time spending changes. The concern would be if we took this as a time to have large ongoing increases in deficits, let's say from starting new programs and not paying for them, and we'll have to see how that goes as we look at the politics surrounding the election. Yeah, you make some very good points there. There is a tendency, I think, to naively forecast that economic conditions that we're experiencing today will continue indefinitely. And so we've, we've been in a long period of low interest rates and low inflation. And 
as you say, the, the, as the debt increases, the amount of interest the federal government has to pay increases as well. But the, the CBO is assuming that interest rates will remain low. And they even say themselves that, that the economy is going to be vulnerable to rising interest rates and potentially rising inflation, which if it were to happen would mean that more and more federal government spending would be needed just to pay the interest on the debt. So you get into a situation where, again, you're either allowing those increasing interest payments, if they occur, to squeeze out other types of spending. So you have to cut back on domestic spending or cut back on defense or things like that. Or you have to raise taxes even higher. And um, these forecasts that they have actually assume, which is the current law, that the tax cuts that were passed a few years ago will expire, as current law says that they will. So these high government, federal government deficits and large accumulations of debt are going to occur in the CBO's forecast, even if uh, it turns out to be the case that those tax cuts are allowed to expire. So I think it's certainly the case that the current path doesn't look like it's sustainable. But it is an issue that students are concerned about, and I think that uh, average non-economists are concerned about, and used to be a big political issue. It used to be um, a, a, a big debate during each presidential election, but it's kind of faded into the background. And maybe, as you say, that's because uh, we've gone through periods of rising deficits and rising debt without seeing much economic consequence. But maybe again, that's the result of interest rates being historically very low. Okay, well this um, brings us then to the article you published a few years ago in, a few days ago, I'm sorry, <laughs> a few years ago, in the journal National Affairs, in which you discussed related issues related to some of the concerns that we've been talking about. We'll post a link to the article on the blog and in the notes to this podcast, you framed your discussion of potential federal government policies in terms of walls and bridges. Can you elaborate on what you mean by walls and bridges in this context? Sure. The, the genesis of this article is really about basic economics, uh, like our textbook, and about how people think about economists, you know, when we teach uh, principles of economics, we, we talk about disruptions uh, ranging from trade and globalization to technological change and innovation. And economists generally say, correctly so, that these are good things for economies on average. And we also say that, of course, if there are people who are worse off from them, the gainers gain more than the losers lose. And so there can be some kind of compensation. If one looks at the politics of the past few decades, though, that hasn't happened. And it's led many populist leaders around the world, including in our own country, to blame those underlying uh, changes like globalization and technological change uh, as opposed to the lack of a response to them. And even worse, many people think economists are the problem, that we, since Adam Smith, have focused on the ability to consume as the highlight of what a wealth of a nation is, as opposed to holding particular jobs. There are many popular books saying economists have just gotten it all wrong. My thesis is no, economists have actually gotten it all right. 
what I we haven't done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, just, it's, a, it's a huge surprise, I'm sure. But I think the reason we have come across poorly to the public is the way we talk about it. So if you look at the way debates about economics are characterized in the public and caricatured, they're between laissez-faire, you know, just take your hands off, let the market do what it will do, and extreme interventions venturing towards socialism. In fact, the real world debate is between walls and bridges, as you teed up. By walls, I mean policy ideas that try to push change away, uh, in practical terms, tariffs, literal walls, uh, anti-immigration policy, slowing down technological change, robot taxes, things like that. It's sort of a wish of, I, let's make the world the way it was. That's not going to work. There's a long economic history of walls that I talk about in the article, and it's a history littered with failure not just failure for wealthy people or failure for people on average, but failure for the people hurt most by these uh, disruptive changes. An alternative is bridges. And that's an old economic idea. It goes back to Adam Smith again of mass flourishing in the economy. And by a bridge, I mean making sure everybody can participate in the economy. So everybody is trained for the jobs that actually exist and will exist rather than wishing for the ones that were here 30 or 50 years ago. And that does require a different kind of investment and a different kind of approach to public policy. But if we do that, we get the public support for disruption. And earlier in the podcast, you were mentioning dynamism and its problems. You know, dynamism's the golden goose. And if we lose that, we lose our living standards. Adam Smith was still right. To get it today, we need bridges. And economists have always talked about those, but we need to frame our language and our rhetoric to be more specific. Rather than just saying no to wall policies, we have to give specific bridge alternatives. Did you have particular bridge policies that you'd like to talk about? Well, let's take one category, which is about participating in work, because we talked about that in previous podcasts. You know, it's really important, obviously, in economic terms. Everybody wants to be an economic participant for the earnings that that brings. But it's also about social connection and individual dignity. Everybody wants to be part of the economic system. It's hard to imagine calling an economic system healthy if a lot of people who live in that area or that country can't participate in it. So what does that mean? That would mean support for training for real jobs. Uh, massive support, for example, for community colleges, for certification programs where businesses work jointly with local colleges and universities for training. It means support for work. We have programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit that support work, but they could be beefed up to be much more meaningful uh, in our economy. We could also be thinking more about reforming unemployment insurance to be less about temporary job losses and more about helping people retrain when they have longer term job losses. We haven't had a serious rethink of unemployment insurance in decades. And rather than screaming about trade and technology, let's fix it. Those are great ideas. Um, as you know, in the textbook, we talk about how many uh, policies can have trade-offs. And you mentioned some that um, tariffs, 
on average tend to reduce incomes, but they uh, raise the incomes of some people and lower the incomes of others. You can talk about other things like rent controls or the minimum wage, that there are winners and losers from these policies. And one of the one of the points that we make repeatedly in the book is the distinction between positive economics, where we analyze these policies and we say, should the federal government or state or local governments enact one of these policies? This is the likely effect. And normative analysis, which is to say, what which of these policies ought to be enacted? And economics uh, doesn't directly uh, address the second, which is to say that somebody may understand that rent control, for instance, may make it difficult for some people who newly arrive in a city to find a nice apartment because it may reduce the number of apartments that end up being supplied. But somebody who understands that say, well, the people who currently have the apartments are winning and people who um, would like to move into the city are losing because they can't find an apartment. Someone may understand that point full well and um, say, well, yeah, but I still am willing to accept that trade-off. I think you're taking this a, a step further and saying that um, economists shouldn't just be sort of done by saying, okay, here are the, the positives, here are the negatives of particular policy, decide which one you would like, Mr. or Ms. Uh, state legislator or member of Congress or whatever. You're saying economics has an obligation to talk about alternatives. So if you want to raise the incomes of lower income people, you may say, here are the, the, the winners and losers from the minimum wage. But then here's another possibility that if we increase training, then people's wages would rise. And um, that would be an alternative that potentially would uh, increase the number of winners and spread the losses to the extent that these are programs funded by taxes across essentially the whole of the, the country or the whole of the taxpayers. So I think these are very uh, interesting points that you've raised. So uh, as a, a matter of practical strategy, I guess you might call it, are there some of these that you think are easier to enact that members of Congress or members of state legislatures would be particularly receptive to? Is it expanding community college, which we know that people on both sides of the political spectrum at different times have talked about? Um, which of these do you think might be the ones that practical politics might be easiest to enact? Well, I think community colleges, Tony, are a good place to start. One, they are the workhorses for training for new jobs and new careers. But there's also the hook of post-COVID-19, where a lot of people are needing retraining. This could be the perfect opportunity to do it. Uh, likewise, earned income tax credit expansions have had support from both Republican and Democratic leaders in the past. So I think these are doable. One reason it's hard is policy is seldom made in economics as a laundry list of do this, do that. It starts with rhetoric. And I think our leaders need to switch to the bridge rhetoric to get these sort of policies done. Walls sound so seductive. They sound so free and easy. I'll just make it like it used to be. Of course, we know they're wrong, but economists have sat to the sidelines while we've watched people say all kinds of things. 
And I think it's time for us to step up. Those are good points. There, there was one policy that I've seen a number of people discuss. I wanted to have your thoughts on it. And that is, um, periodically people say, well, you know, why is the Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.? Why isn't it in Omaha, Nebraska, or Sioux City, Iowa, or someplace? Or, you know, do, in other words, we need the, um, the concentration of agencies of the federal government in Washington, D.C.? You know, it sort of happened that gradually over time, as the federal government became larger, uh, agencies just were located where the other federal agencies were, for the most part. Um, some people have thought, well, maybe there would be some gains, because we know that there are gains to areas in this time, mainly uh, Northern Virginia and, and um, places in Maryland, that have gained from the fact that government agency is there, it employs a lot of people, it, you know, there are contractors and other people who are attracted uh, there, and in fact, the counties around Washington, D.C. have done by and large very well economically, then maybe we could spread out the federal government across the country and areas that uh, currently might have some difficulty attracting industries would, would get a, a, a boost from that. A kind of related point is somebody, some people have raised the issue that, that universities are often boons for the places that they're in both in terms of employment, but also in terms of research. And that as uh, universities that are um, successful in attracting researchers, oftentimes there are startup companies that form around them and so on. And we know as things are now that a lot of that is concentrated in a relatively few places, flagship uh, state universities and so on. So some people have said maybe we ought to increase federal spending for research and development, which may be a good idea in and of itself, but do it in a way that kind of spreads the funds to different colleges and universities with the more or less uh, intentional aim of trying to have these places be research hubs, attracting some of the new dynamic businesses that we'd like to see, and that also provide a, an opportunity for students who are at these universities to get good jobs. Because one of the things that sometimes happens is you have someone who graduates from a university, and if in that area there really is not much else going on, they end up migrating to New York or Chicago or San Francisco or someplace. Uh, rather than staying there, they might be more attracted to stay there if, in fact, the university was, was able to spin off businesses that would be attractive to, to young um, college graduates. Is that a, a, a policy that you have some sympathy for? Or? I, I think it is. You know, the logic of the Morrill Act and land-grant colleges was having at the local level ways for people to get training for the economy. And I think one can make that case, obviously, as I said before, with community colleges, but also with applied research institutes. There's no reason those can't be spread out around the country, as well as some offices of government agencies. So I, I think you've got a very good idea. Glenn, that was a great discussion. I think that we've covered some of the issues that students have been interested in. And just a reminder that if anyone listening has an issue or concern they'd like us to discuss, you can send us an email at hubbardobrieneconomics at gmail.com. 
And if you found this um, podcast on our blog, you can also subscribe to it on iTunes and you can make us part of your podcast feed. We hope you keep checking our blog because we'll periodically post. So thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien economics podcast. We'll see you next time.